Scriptura is a lie. That is Michael Voorhis, a Catholic apologist teaching on Sola Scriptura. Hello, this is Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, and you are listening to Table Scraps. Our, our topic today is Catholic apologists, uh, and especially the doctrine of Sola Scriptura, or Bible alone. And we have joining us for the conversation Pastor Steve Parks, who's pastor at University Hills Lutheran Church in Denver, Colorado. Pastor Parks, welcome to Table Scraps. Thank you, Pastor Wolfmuller. It's great to be with you today. Sola Scriptura is a lie. That's, uh, that is the line that's put forth by our uh, Catholic apologists, and we want to talk about that and see if that itself is perhaps uh, a bit of a lie. Uh, we'll be taking up the topic. But first, Steve, why don't you introduce us perhaps a bit to yourself and your own interaction with Catholic apologists? Who are these guys? Uh, what are they trying to do, and what do you know about them? Sure. Well, I'll just kind of give you a little bit of uh, background as far as how I kind of came to uh, to begin studying some of these issues. I was a, a non-denominational Christian back in the early 90s, and uh, at that time I had a friend who invited me to a debate, and the debate was between a group called the Christians United for Reformation, uh, now known, uh, the, those uh, brothers at the, the White Horse Inn, uh, and then the the group representing the Roman Catholic perspective in this debate was a group called Catholic Answers, and they were represented by three, uh, three Catholic apologists. And I'll tell you, the, uh, the men who were representing the Protestant position did a great job, uh, but they were kind of coming from a different perspective than, than I was. They were coming from a distinctly Reformation perspective, and since that wasn't really my background, I didn't understand a lot of what they said. But the Catholics seem to do a very good job of, uh, of packaging their particular views on things like Sola Scriptura, the Bible alone, or uh, Sola Fide, faith alone, taking their views and making them sound very palatable to uh, Protestants who really aren't that deeply grounded in history, much less the Reformation. And so I left that debate pretty shaken. Uh, my faith was, uh, was, was really shaken, and I was very concerned about some things. So I went up to one of the Catholic debaters afterwards, a man named Robertson Genis, and talked to him a bit. And to make a long story short, he essentially told me that I would go to hell uh, if I didn't become a Roman Catholic, because I was uh, questioning some of those things. And so that kind of launched me into a very serious study. It shook me to think that somebody that I had considered a Christian at that time told me that I was going to go to hell. So I kind of launched into a serious study of these things. I launched into a study of theology, launched into a study of church history, particularly of the Reformation and the central debates uh, surrounding that issue. And the more I dug into Scripture and the more I dug into the Reformers and the Church Fathers, the more convinced I was that the Roman Catholics were absolutely wrong that though they had done a very good job of kind of taking snippets of the Bible uh, and taking snippets from the Church Fathers and making them sound as if they agreed with the Roman Catholic perspective, that when you actually look at these things, uh, nothing could be further from the truth. And so my particular emphasis with these Catholic apologists has been those guys, um, uh, some of whom I actually interacted with personally, but especially those Roman Catholic apologists who were at one time Protestants. Uh, that kind of has, has been my major area of emphasis, because I find, more often than not, that these guys that left Protestantism really didn't understand it, to be quite honest. 
Well, give us some of the names uh, of the more popular Catholic apologists, uh, some people that we might be talking about here. Sure. I, I think of uh, there's there's four right off the top of my head that um, that are men who converted from Protestant uh, Protestantism to Roman Catholicism. The first is a man named Scott Hahn. Uh, he, he's now the, um, the founder and, and president of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, but he's actually a graduate of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, a Reformed Seminary, seminary. Uh, and he was in fact an ordained pastor in the Presbyterian Church of America. Um, some of the, the listeners might be familiar with him. He's done other things besides Catholic apolog- apologetics, but that's kind of what he's largely known for. He wrote a book called Rome Sweet Home, where he kind of um, goes through his own conversion story and talks about some of the things that I'm sure we'll be discussing today. Another man uh, whose story is kind of interestingly tied up with him is a man named Jerry Mattatix, who's now the head of Biblical Foundations International. Now, he also uh, is a graduate of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. In fact, he was a classmate of Scott Hahn's, and he too was an ordained pastor in the Presbyterian Church of America. Uh, and in fact, it was his efforts in trying to stop Scott Hahn from being a Catholic that actually uh, ended up causing Jerry Mattatix himself to convert to Roman Catholicism. In other words, the story that we're told is that Hahn's arguments and the, the arguments that are marshaled against Protestantism within the Roman Catholic Church were so strong that Jerry Mattatix wasn't able to resist them. And so he actually ended up becoming Roman Catholic before Scott Hahn did. Oops. Uh, there's another man named Robertson Genis. Uh, he's the one that I actually spoke with at the debate who told me that I would likely go to hell. He's now the head of Catholic Apologetics International, and he's a graduate of Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, which is a Reformed seminary. Now, some of the listeners might be uh, familiar with him as well. He's written a, a very popular series amongst Roman Catholics. It's, it's what I call the Not By series. It's a, a series of books, Not By Scripture Alone, where he attacks Sola Scriptura, uh, not by faith alone, where he attacks sola fide, and uh, one not by bread alone, where he attacks sort of the memorial view of uh, of the Lord's Supper and defends the Roman Catholic view. There's another guy, and this one particularly I find interesting. His name is Tim Staples. He's uh, He's been with several organizations in the past, but he's now with a group called Catholic Answers. He's a graduate of Jimmy Swaggart Bible College and uh, formerly an Assemblies of God youth pastor. He wrote a book called Nuts and Bolts, um, which is sort of a, a guide to explaining and defending Roman Catholicism. And I find him so interesting because of the fact that, as, as you and I know, Brian, uh, when you talk about some evangelicals, uh, like I was back in the 90s, they just don't know that much really about Reformation theology. And so his conversion to Roman Catholicism is an interesting one, because I typically find that he, in particular, tends to really get the Reformation and Luther and Calvin wrong. Now, there's all these guys out there uh, but what are they doing? What's their agenda? What's the what's the plot, uh, the the script they're, that they're following? Yeah. Well, basically, what they want is is to kind of have the same thing happen to you and to me that happened to them, which is they want us to discover what they believe to be the fullness of the truth that's found in the Roman Catholic Church. And so, you know, they certainly might recognize us as fellow Christians, perhaps even brothers in Christ. But they may. But, but what they're not going to do is say that we have the fullness of the truth as Jesus intends. And in order for us to possess the fullness of the truth as Jesus intends, then we have to go home to Rome. That is, we have to become Roman Catholics. And so uh, their stated goal is to win as many sons and daughters of the Reformation to the Roman Catholic Church as they possibly can. And they do that by attacking certain tenets of the Reformation, one of those being sola scriptura, which is what we want to talk about now. But why is it sola scriptura? I mean, what uh, what is it that makes these guys who are trying to uh, grab a bunch of... Uh, 
sons of the Reformation, as you call it, uh, Lutherans, Reformed, Evangelicals, uh, uh, bring, and bring them into the Roman Catholic Church, why, why is it that they will, they will attack almost immediately the, this teaching of sola scriptura? Well, they recognize that the, the Protestant Reformation is built really upon two pillars. Uh, the first is the doctrine of sola scriptura, that is, that the teaching that the Bible is the, uh, the only infallible rule of faith for the Christian Church. And the other, uh, which kind of rests upon that, is the teaching of uh, justification or, or being saved by faith alone, that is, faith alone in Christ. And, uh, and what they attempt to do, essentially, is kind of yank the sola scriptura rug out from underneath you. And in doing that, then, you're not going to have any grounds upon which to make assertions about things like sola fide, faith alone, or sola gratia, grace alone, or solus Christus, Christ alone, and so on. They figure if they can take away the grounding upon which you stand for each and everything that you believe, uh, then the only thing that you have left is, is basically to reach out and grasp the one thing that they believe can actually lead you into all truth, which is the Church. There you go. So you push someone into the quicksand, and then you throw them the rope uh, to pull them out. And that and that's what this undoing of the doctrine of sola scriptura is. We want to take a number. You're listening, by the way, to Table Scraps. This is Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, and I have with me Pastor Steve Parks, pastor of University Hills Lutheran Church in Denver, Colorado. And we are talking about Catholic apologists and their attacks on sola scriptura. I want to uh, kind of cover a number of things just to lay the foundation for what's going to come later. Uh, and, and Steve, you tell me which way you want to take these questions. I want to know uh, what is the biblical doctrine of sola scriptura, if these Catholic apologists understand it rightly, uh, and what is their then attack on what they understand to be the doctrine of sola scriptura. So what do you want to take up first? Well, let's just go ahead and take them in the order that you gave them. All right. That's so amazing. the first one you asked is, is, what is the biblical doctrine of sola scriptura? Well, sola scriptura is, is Latin, uh, which was the language of theologians in, in the Reformation, but it basically means uh, through Scripture alone. And when we talk about sola scriptura, we're talking about the number of infallible sources that God has given us to tell us about Him. And for those in the Reformation, the answer was simply one. We only have one infallible source, uh, from today, that is, from which to learn about God, and that is the Scriptures themselves. Now, I want to point out kind of one thing that I think is very germane to the topic, and that is that sola scriptura refers to the normative condition of the Church. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean, it doesn't refer to the time when there were prophets that walked the earth and, and spoke the inspired and infallible Word of God, nor does it refer to the time when Jesus and the apostles walked the earth and they spoke. Uh, orally the uh, the inspired and infallible Word of God. Instead, it refers to that time specifically when we have no prophets and no apostles. So when we have no prophet or apostle to speak to us infallibly the Word of God, where do we turn to find out uh, what God would have us to believe and teach and confess? The answer of the Reformers was we turn to the Scriptures and to Scriptures alone, and this is why we say sola scriptura. Now, what's the amazing thing, too, is that the prophets and apostles themselves will refer back to the Scriptures to uh, validate their own message. So here you even have the infallible uh, messengers of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the prophets and apostles, and they themselves will even uh, uh, use the Scriptures to prove their point. Well, that's exactly it. There's, there's no fear on the part of the, the prophets or the apostles, because they were sent by the same God who wrote the Scriptures. Uh, and so there's no fear on their part to demonstrate the consistency of what they taught with the consistency of what God had always revealed. So even while those men were alive, they pointed us to the Scriptures, because Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel knew that they weren't going to live forever. 
Jesus knew that he wasn't always, always going to be here uh, walking the earth with us in the same way that he did with the apostles. The apostles knew that they weren't always going to be here. And so the question is, to what source uh, do those men of God, and, and in the case of Jesus, the, the incarnate Son of God, to what source do those men point us? They never point us to some alleged infallible tradition, but they always and in every case point us to Scripture and to no other source. And so that's essentially why we say sola scriptura. We're pointed only to one source for infallible information about God, and that's the Scriptures. Now, I think the uh, Roman Catholic apologists, when they attack sola scriptura, are attacking actually something different than that. I want you to talk about that, but let's... Let's have Hahn, this is uh, Scott Hahn, uh, talking. He's He was actually a caller, he was a guest on a radio show. Oh, I even know which one it is here, because Evan wrote this down for me. Seize the Day with Gus Lloyd. Uh, this was back in 1998. So the audio is a, a bit rough, so uh, listen carefully, those of you who are listening out there. But this is Scott Hahn, uh, his first clip, talking uh, about his discovery that Sola Scriptura wasn't taught in the Bible. Here's Scott. And when I was first trained as a new believer, I was trained to study Scripture. And now as a Catholic, I'm still encouraged to do the same, and I would want to encourage all Catholics to do that. But the one thing I picked up along the way was what was called the formal principle of the Protestant Reformation, sola scriptura, that the Bible alone is our exclusive authority, and that there is no tradition and that there is no church authority that is binding for believers. And I proceeded along those lines for many, many years until I began to notice a few things. First and foremost, there is no text anywhere in the New Testament or the Old which teaches that the Bible is our only authority. And so you're hard-pressed because here you're saying that the Bible is the only authority, and only if the Bible teaches something can you believe it, but that principle itself is not taught in the Scriptures. And frankly, I wasn't even aware of that until... Graduating from seminary, I was teaching uh, a seminary class one evening myself. One of my sharpest students raised his hand and he said, Where does the Bible teach sola scriptura? Well, I went to Matthew 15 where Jesus condemns certain human traditions that contradict the Word of God, but he wasn't condemning tradition itself. And this fellow, John, quickly pointed out that in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, St. Paul elevates the tradition and says, Hey, hold fast to the traditions which you've received from us, either in writing or word of mouth, and likewise in Second Thessalonians 3, 6. And so I was in a crisis of faith within a matter of hours from that point on. And I began to study, and what I discovered was that the Bible itself, the New Testament especially, nowhere states, sola scriptura, that the doctrine itself is unscriptural. Oh, that's it. He ended quickly there. Uh, so there you go, Steve. What do you think about this? His, give us, you know, unfold his understanding of sola scriptura and then uh, critique it. And then I'd like your answer to this question. If someone said to you, well, where is sola scriptura taught in the scripture? Uh, so give us, uh, give us a bit of that. Sure. And I'm glad you asked that first part of the question first as far as unpacking Han's view of sola scriptura. Because, uh, again, it's important to point out that a lot of these guys— and in that clip, Han in particular really doesn't understand the doctrine of Sola Scriptura. Either, either that or he purposefully misrepresents it. It's got to be one of the two. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, he says um, that, uh, that the doctrine of Sola Scriptura teaches that the Bible is our only authority. That's exactly what he said. Now, he leaves out one very important word there, and that is the word infallible. You see, Sola Scriptura teaches that the Bible is our only infallible authority. 
But there are many authorities which operate under the infallible authority of Scripture. For example, in the Old Covenant, you had the Levitical priesthood. And the Levitical priesthood was instituted by the Lord Yahweh himself to preach and teach and to interpret the Scriptures. But they didn't do it infallibly, as we saw time and time and time again, and they're departing from the teachings of the law. We have also in the New Testament pastors, which are given authority to preach and to interpret the Scriptures. But they do it fallibly. In other words, it's possible that they can make mistakes or make errors. Uh, God gives us not only pastors today, but he's given us pastors throughout church history for thousands of years. Many of those pastors we refer to as the church fathers, and we don't completely write them off. We simply don't give them the same authority that the scriptures possess. So they're certainly just like uh, the hearing the preaching of your pastor. It's useful. It's a wonderful thing. Uh, they point us to the Lord Jesus Christ and him crucified for the forgiveness of all of our sins, etc. But we don't, on that account, give them the same status or the same authority as the scriptures. And the same, of course, is true for creeds and catechisms and confessions and all of those wonderful things that these men of God have produced uh, throughout 2,000 years of, of Christian history. And that is we use them reverently and we receive them when they're in full agreement with Scripture. But when they depart from the Scriptures, then we have to, on that account, depart from them. So this one small word, infallible, makes all the difference in the, word, the world. It's the difference between having no authorities except the Bible, which means kind of it's just me and my Bible in the woods, versus the scriptures being your only foul, infallible authority, with many fallible authorities such as priests and pastors and creeds and confessions and catechisms, etc., operating under that ultimate authority of the scriptures. Me and my Bible in the woods, I thought that was the name of the retreat that you guys were going on at your church in the next few weeks, wasn't it? <laughs> that you, this is a marvelous point, because this uh, uh, the, the shift of the discussion to infallibility, because it's when, it's when we know that the scriptures are absolutely true, because God speaks them and God cannot lie, so it's a reflection of his own character, that then, then they become trustworthy and we can have certainty. But it seems to me that, uh, that the Catholic apologists are not interested in certainty or in clarity, but rather in simply this question of authority. Who, who speaks that you have to listen to them? And, and, and this is the, then the agenda that's put forth in all of these other uh, discussions as well. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point, although I do think that they are interested in certainty. In fact, in many cases, this is why these guys will tell you that they actually became Roman Catholic, is uh, as many of them, for example, were Reformed, and so they were Calvinists. And they had disagreements with Catholics and Eastern Orthodox Christians, and they had disagreements with Lutheran Christians and with Baptists and with Evangelicals and Pentecostals and so on. And they would say each of those people tends to go by, uh, claims to go by the Bible. So how do we know who really is speaking the truth? How do we know that Luther had the truth, or Calvin had the truth, or Wesley had the truth, or, and so on and so on? And so it was that question that actually drove many of these men, they say, uh, into the arms of the Roman Catholic Church. But you see, it doesn't really answer the question. It really doesn't get at the, the chief point, which is that human beings, by nature, are fallible. You can make mistakes, I can make mistakes, and these men that we have been talking about can make mistakes. And so they're keenly aware of that, and so they don't want to trust in their own ability to interpret Scripture. So they flee to the Church, and they let the Church interpret the Scriptures for them. However, they're stuck with really the exact same problem, and that is the problem of interpretation. How do they really know that what they think the Church teaches is actually what the Church teaches. I mean, these guys have some really serious disagreements among themselves. I mean, guys that were really close friends 
like Scott Hahn and Jerry Matatix are kind of at each other's throats now because they disagree theologically about so many important issues. The same is true with Robertson Genes. He was once a guy who was very highly regarded as a Catholic apologist, but has kind of fallen out of disfavor recently because, uh, you know, he, he he teaches and believes things about the Catholic faith that other Catholic apologists don't believe. In every case, you have each one of these individuals seeking to interpret the teachings of the Church for themselves, and as a result, disagreeing with one another about what the Church teaches. That's the exact same thing we have going on with Protestantism, except we do it about the Bible and not canon law. So it's one layer removed. So they criticize us because we have a uh, hundred different individual interpretations of the Scripture, but they at the same time have a hundred or a thousand different interpretations of the Church's infallible interpretation of the Scripture. Precisely. They've just pushed the question back a step, but they have, haven't actually dealt with it at all. Now tell me, uh, if you were in the classroom, and you had this student, your brightest student, uh, John, and he said, where does the Bible teach sola scriptura? How would you have answered the question? Well, I think a couple of ways. First of all, I would make sure that John understands what sola scriptura actually teaches. Now, why is that? Because there are some Protestants who will say that that, that means that the Bible is our only authority. They automatically rule out any fallible authorities that operate under the infallible authority of Scripture. And if that's the case, and if that's what John believed about Sola Scriptura, he's actually absolutely right. The Bible doesn't teach that kind of a view, but neither did the Reformers. No church father taught it, no reformer taught it, and in fact it didn't really become popular until the Anabaptists in the 16th century kind of began to advocate that uh, that each individual person sort of becomes their own pope in the interpretation of Scripture. I like so, tracing problems back to the Anabaptists, by the way. <laughs> Whatever chance you get, huh? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So I would have made sure that he understood what sola scriptura is, and then I think I simply would have taken him through and pointed it out, pointed out to him that if he wants to find out what the scriptures teach about sola scriptura, then all he has to do is simply look at those times when there were no prophets or apostles, and see what uh, to what source the prophets and apostles pointed us during those times. For example. Uh, Moses tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 4, and this was, by the way, not simply to the priests, but to all of Israel. He says, You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments that the, uh, of the Lord your God which I command you. We see that in Deuteronomy 4, we see it in Deuteronomy 12 and 13, and all over the Old Testament. So here Moses knows that he's not going to be around forever, and to what source does he point the people of Israel? He points them right back to the written law, the written commandments of God. We see this all throughout the Old Testament. For example, in Joshua chapter 1, where the Lord commands them, don't, do not turn from it to the right or to the left. In other words, you don't depart from the written word that's given to you, neither do you add to it, as we have already seen from Deuteronomy 4. Then you look at examples uh, in places like 2 Kings chapter 22, where the, word, the written word of God falls into disuse, and you see what happens in those particular instances. And we find out in 2 Kings chapter 22 that when the written word of God is lost, the church immediately falls into error. In fact, Josiah says, go inquire of the Lord for me, again, this is from 2 Kings 22, and the people and all Judah concerning the words of the book that have been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that burns against us, because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. Now that's important. Why? Because God had instituted a group of individuals, the Levitical priests in the Old Testament, in order to preach and to teach his word. But when they let the, the, the book, the written word of God, fall into disuse, they depart from God's teaching almost immediately. You see God constantly calling people on the carpet in the Old Testament for this particular thing. For example, in Malachi chapter 2, 
the Lord says, For the lips of a priest should keep knowledge, and people should seek the law from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. And then he goes on in verse 8. But you have departed from the way. You have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So again, to what source is God calling the people back to? Uh, the, the very word of God, which he charges the priest to be able to preach and to teach. And it's for this reason that Isaiah and other prophets can say things like, to the, te- to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it's because there's no light in them. Now, I'm going to pause here for just a minute, because these are all Old Testament examples. And, and why is that important? Because Rome doesn't believe that there was any infallible authority in the Old Testament. In other words, they acknowledge that the Levitical priests, for example, were fallible teachers of the Word. And so they acknowledge that when there were no prophets, that the Old Testament people of God had only one infallible source of truth, and that was the Scriptures. And so by their own admission, they have to admit that in the Old Testament, sola scriptura was, in fact, the rule of faith. Now what happens historically in the intertestamental period is that is the period between the Old and the New Testaments, is you have this really interesting view of tradition take root. And usually it's associated with the Pharisees. Basically what the Pharisees taught essentially was this, and this is of course before Christ comes on the scene. Uh, they're teaching that, uh, that God gives to Moses not just his written word, but also an oral interpretation of that written word. And so they talk about it as being two Torahs that God has given to Moses. The oral Torah, which they call the Mishnah, and the written Torah, which they call the Tanakh. And they say together, these two things comprise the, um, uh, the, the revelation that God wants Israel to have. Now, if you compare that to what the Roman Catholics believe, it's, exa- it's almost exactly the exact same thing that they believe. They I love it. I, just, I mean, just to pause there, and uh, this is just really fantastic, is that th- so you can say to the Catholic apologist, oh, yeah, uh, you have the same source, uh, doctrine of authority that the Pharisees did. They really do, as a matter of fact. And in, in many cases, some of them will admit that, and they'll even quote uh, certain things that Jesus says positively about the Pharisees to show that the Pharisees were kind of on the right track as far as all of this was concerned. Oof. And so, I mean, it's it's basically, you know, God, uh, Moses received this uh, this oral tradition from God on Mount Sinai, and he passes it on to Joshua, and Joshua passes it on to his successors, who pass it on to the elders in the synagogues, who give it to the people. Now, how interesting that in the Old Testament, when you do have a living prophet, they're teaching the doctrine, so the scriptura. But when the when the prophetic voice stops at the death of Malachi, uh, and, and then you get you know the Maccabean time and the development of the uh, of the synagogue and all of this, you, you have the Pharisees coming up with a kind of two source. Uh, theory of uh, of theological authority or something like that. Well, that's precisely it, and you can kind of understand it from the position of the Pharisees in the sense that uh, these guys come out of the Hasmonean rebellion, and uh, and what that is basically is is what you had going on was a was a general Hellenization of the Jews, and what that means is that the Jews were becoming less and less Hebraic in their culture, and they were becoming more and more Greek in their culture, and these guys recognized that Hebraic culture was pretty tied in with uh, with who they were as an identity, a national identity with Israel, and as a result, also what the scriptures taught. And so they wanted to get away from this Hellenization or this, this Greek culture, and they wanted instead to be the Hebrews that God had called them to be. Certainly a, a wonderful and a worthwhile thing, 
but the way in which they do it uh, in order to ensure all of these things, following the traditions of the fathers and so on, actually ends up being contradicted by Jesus himself. So, for example, uh, in, in Matthew chapter 15, uh, the Pharisees get very upset with Jesus and his disciples because they're not washing their hands according to the traditions of the fathers. And Jesus answers and says to them in Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse 3, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who, who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say... Whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you have received from me is a gift of God, then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus, you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Or as Jesus says in the, uh, the King James Version, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your traditions. Now, what's going on here? The Pharisees had a tradition. Uh, a, a tradition that they believed, by the way, that God had given to Moses, and Moses to Joshua, and Joshua passed all the way down to them. And the tradition said that, uh, that although the commandment says that you have to honor your father and your mother in the fourth commandment, that you don't have to keep that commandment or you don't have to take care of your, your parents in their old age if, when you die, you dedicate all your wealth to the temple. And so what Jesus does is he takes this allegedly divine tradition, supposedly given by God to Moses, Moses to Joshua, Joshua all the way down to them, and he, he refutes it with nothing but the written word of God. Now Jesus could have said, this isn't true. I am the Son of God and I can tell you this. He doesn't do that. He instead, applies, he instead appeals to the written word of God. And so we have in the Roman Catholic Church a very similar teaching, that Jesus revealed to Peter and the other apostles certain truths, which perhaps weren't written down orally, and that these men passed it on to their successors, and their successors to their successors, all the way down to uh, the current Bishop of Rome and the bishops that we have today. We actually have a, a clip on that from Scott Hahn. I, we'll put it in here. I know we have more uh, scriptures in the New Testament to cover, uh, but let's listen to Hahn on this uh, on this discussion of Jesus instituting this infallible interpretive office by calling Peter the rock uh, here. You're listening, by the way, to Table Scraps. Pastor Brian Wolfmuller here with Pastor Steve Parks of University Hills Lutheran Church in uh, Denver, Colorado, and we are talking about sola scriptura and how good it is <laughs> and how bad uh, these Catholic apologists who undermine it are. Here's Scott Hahn talking about this uh, institution of the Church. But even more, it's unhistorical because the way we got the New Testament was from the church that Jesus Christ founded. Jesus Christ never said, write this in remembrance of me. He said, do this in remembrance of me. When he sent out his apostles, he sent them out to build the church. He said, I will build my church upon this rock, which was Peter. And so I found all kinds of evidence in the New Testament pointing me, first and foremost, to the New Testament church, which then produced the New Testament books, which then produced the successors to the apostles that we called bishops, who convened in certain councils like the Council of Hippo in 393 A.D. or the Council of Carthage in 397 A.D. At these two councils, Catholic bishops sitting there with authority because they were successors to the apostles sat down and they hammered out, okay, what books are inspired, what books are to be included in the New Testament, and what books are to be excluded they had a list that we would recognize because they include everything from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the book of Revelation, but they had the Shepherd of Hermas. They had the, the book of Barnabas. They had the writings of Clement and Ignatius. They had the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Nicodemus. They had a lot of documents that were circulating 
in certain quarters and being received by some believers on par with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and so on. So the decision that was reached took, actually it took uh, in the 200s and the 300s, the, the church was shifting and sorting, recognizing which documents were authentic, which documents were apostolic on the one hand, and which ones were not. But ultimately, the church councils had to decide. Now, when the councils decided, these councils of Hippo and Carthage didn't impart authority to these documents because the authentic inspired documents in the New Testament already possessed authority because they were inspired. But you have to have a binding decision on the, you know, on the basis of some authority as to which books are inspired and which books aren't. I like that you have to have a binding authority. So, <laughs> I, this guy has two mouths. Uh, I want to know if the scriptures are authoritative or not, and he he refuses to uh, he refuses to answer that question. I don't think normally a Catholic apologists are as kind of cautious as he is. They'll normally say, "Look, the scriptures have their authority because the church decided they do." Am I right about that? Or? You're absolutely right. I mean, if you look historically, some of these guys that were arguing with men like Luther and Melanchthon and Chemnitz and, and Calvin and Beza and Turretin and, and all the uh, Reformation theologians, you know, they'll say things like, uh, there's no difference between the scriptures and Aesop's fables uh, until the church tells you uh, which ones you're supposed to believe. <laughs> and so, I mean, you know, he's being very careful here. And again, I mean, the man was educated as a Protestant, so he knows very well that the scriptures have, in, the, in and of themselves, divine authority, because they are the word of the Lord who has, in and of himself, divine authority. But, you know, I, I thought it was interesting that he, he concludes that with saying that, uh, that although these, these scriptures had authority in and of themselves, you have to have a binding authority. And he talks about that binding authority in the 4th century, at the, at the councils of Hippo and Carthage in 393 and 397 A.D. I find it interesting then that for 400 years, the Christian Church, according to Scott Hahn, didn't actually have a binding authority as it related to the Scriptures. I suppose you could just believe kind of whatever you wanted to believe. Or, I would point out that for millennia before that, apparently the Jews didn't have any idea what Scripture was and what Scripture wasn't, since they had no infallible authority to tell them what scripture, uh, which Scriptures were true and which Scriptures were false. The bottom line is God is able to reveal His Word to His people, and He promises that He will keep it pure, and He has kept that throughout, uh, throughout history. And, you know, the, the really interesting thing here is Scott Hahn actually departs from, uh, from the consensus of, uh, of many who, who would argue that because of the fact that the, the councils of Hippo and Carthage were provincial councils and not ecumenical councils, that they didn't actually have infallible authority. So do you know when the first time that the Roman Catholic Church ever pronounced in an ecumenical council with infallible authority what the canon was? Is that Trent? Council of Trent in the 16th century. <laughs> I love so it. for 1,600 years, apparently Christians didn't know what was and what was not Scripture until the Council of Trent. Oh, boy, what a mess. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I guess we look back and we're like, 393, oh, that was a long time ago, right at the beginning. But really, it's, uh, what, that's all, that's 380 years or so, 360 years after the death of our Lord Jesus. That's a long time for uh, for this necessary binding authority to uh, to demonstrate itself. But well, not only that, but it's interesting that 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 for 400 years people were being put to death for for having copies of these scriptures in their homes. <laughs> Remember the Roman the the Romans were were seeking to take these scriptures away from people uh, and and burn them and get rid of them, and people were were allowing themselves to be martyred rather than hand over the Word of God to be burned and destroyed. 
and yet all that time apparently they could have just done it because hey the church hasn't told me what's what is scripture and what isn't scripture i did want to kind of seize upon one thing that he said there he talks about how the doctrine of sola scriptura is unhistorical and now i would agree if by sola scriptura you meant what scott hahn means which is to say that it's just me and and my bible and uh with every succeeding generation of christians we kind of have to rethink everything from the ground up and reinvent the wheel but of course we've seen that's not what what was taught what we're saying uh basically is simply that uh, what sola scriptura means that the bible is the only infallible rule of faith so no writings of the church fathers no writings of bishops nothing like that are to be received in the same way in which the scriptures are to be received only the bible is free from the possibility of error right, right. so let me read to you something that saint augustine said and and i'm i'm choosing here saint augustine for a couple of reasons number one he's an early church father he's from the third and fourth century and so we're not far off from the time period that scott hahn here is talking about but i'm also choosing augustine because Boy, probably all the way up until Thomas Aquinas in the, in the medieval period, I'd say that there probably was no church father who had as great an impact upon Western Christianity as Augustine. But I want you to listen to what Augustine says to Jerome. Now, he and Jerome were involved in some correspondence to one another, and they had a disagreement. Uh, and so uh, this is what Augustine says. He says, For I confess to your charity that I have learned to yield this respect and honor only to the canonical books of Scripture. Of these alone do I most firmly believe that the authors were completely free from error. As to all other writings, in reading them, however great the superiority of the authors to myself in sanctity and learning, I do not accept their teaching as true on the mere ground of the opinion being held by them, but only because they have succeeded in convincing my judgment of truth, either by means of these canonical writings themselves or by arguments addressed to my reason." I believe, my brother, that this is your own opinion as well as mine. So here, <laughs> the great church father uh, Augustine says that unless you can convince me from the scriptures or reason, I'm not going to believe it. Now this sounds almost exactly like Martin Luther, 1,300 years later, who says at the Council of Worms where he's going to be excommunicated and possibly put under the ban to be killed, that unless I can be convinced from the scriptures or reason, my conscience is bound and held captive to the Word of God. But listen to what else Augustine says. He says uh, in a letter to uh, Fortunatianus, uh, speaking of, of writings of other church fathers like Ambrose and Jerome and others, he says this, for the reasonings of any men whatsoever, even though they be Catholics and of high reputation, are not to be treated by us in the same way as the canonical scriptures are treated. We are at liberty, without doing any violence to the respect which these men deserve, to condemn and reject anything in their writings, if perchance we shall find that they have entertained opinions differing from that which others or we ourselves have, by divine help, discovered to be the truth. I deal thus with the writings of others, and I wish my intelligent readers to deal thus with mine. Nice. Now, if that's not Sola Scriptura, I don't know what is. <laughs> hey, uh, St. Augustine was down in Hippo. Was he at the Council of Hippo in 393? Do we know that? Uh, I don't know offhand, but you know, one of the things that, that does strike me um, is, is here we have Scott Hahn talking about the importance of binding authority and the binding authority of the, of the canon, or the, uh, the extent of the canon that was kind of decreed at the councils of Hippo and, Carth and Carthage. You want to know something interesting is that the canons that were, uh, that was received at the councils of Hippo and Carthage actually differ from the council that, or from the canon that was received at the Council of Trent. 
That's great. How are the, how is it different? By the well, way? the Council of Trent omits the Septuagint version of First Esdras, and uh, and as a result of that, you have a, a different canon that was received in uh, in Hippo and Carthage than that which was received in Trent. So if he wants to say oh. that Hippo and Carthage were infallible, then he's got problems because you got two infallible councils contradicting <laughs> another infallible council. Don't confuse me with the facts. <laughs> Now, uh, I know that I this uh, listening to this uh, Han quote has derailed you from your previous line of thought uh, on where Sola Scriptura is taught by our Lord Jesus. Han, Han I'll bring derails you... me in many places. <laughs> I'll, I'll bring you back to it, though, because Han <laughs> says that Jesus wants to deliver an authority to the Church, and he does it by appointing Peter. And then he does the magic Catholic jump that Peter then has successors, which is nowhere... I mean, where where do you find that hinted at in the Scriptures? I've got... I mean, that's just... Why do the promises given to Peter apply to every single pope? It is just a fantastic Catholic mystery. But, uh, but, but Han wants the authority to be given to the world in the form of Peter and the office of the pope. But where does Jesus give uh, in other places this authority uh, to where we know what is true about God? Yeah, you know, that's a really interesting question, because the place that most Catholics are, are going to immediately go to is places like uh, Matthew chapter 16. Where Peter said, or where the Lord Jesus says to Peter, uh, "I say unto you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church." And they assume that the rock that's being discussed there is is the rock of Saint Peter. It doesn't actually hold up. If you look at the Greek, you find out that when Jesus talks about the rock upon which he's going to to build his church, it's not the rock of Peter, but another rock that he speaks about as if it's the third person. Now, some church fathers will interpret that rock as being Peter. Some church fathers will interpret that rock as being the uh, the confession of St. Peter, and other fathers will interpret uh, that rock as being Christ himself, upon which the church is built. Uh, but the interesting thing there that, uh, that Luther points out is that uh, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus makes the promise that he will, dozo, in the future tense, give the keys of the kingdom of heaven to Peter. But he doesn't, in Matthew 16, actually give them to him. The only place that you can actually find where the keys are given to Peter is two chapters later in Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus gives them not only to Peter, but to all of the apostles at the same time. Nice, and that's why we say that the authority to bind and loose sins is a a unique authority given to the Church, not to a particular person in the Church, but to... Uh, but to the Lord's Church on earth. Precisely, precisely. This is a gift that our Lord Jesus Christ has won for us in his life and in his death and in his resurrection, to be used in faith and to be used reverently and to be received with thanksgiving by all of his people. What about the apostles, uh, the apostles of our Lord Jesus? Uh, Where do they uh, mention or teach sola scriptura? Yeah. Uh, You know, I I think that probably one of the best places to go is one of the places that Han doesn't actually think is a very good place, and uh, and that is to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Hey, I got that audio here. Let's play it. All right. In the meantime, I got got to work, and I focused immediately upon 2 Timothy 3.16, thinking that this is going to be the proof that the Bible alone is sufficient as our formal authority. But the deeper I went into it, the more I realized that couldn't be Paul's purpose in writing 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17. If you go back and read it in context, you see in verse 14 where Paul tells Timothy, as for you, continue in what you've learned and how, and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ. The sacred writings in this case, of course, are the Old Testament. And so he goes on in the next verse saying, all scripture is inspired by God. And what he's talking about, of course, is not what we call the Bible, the Old and New Testaments, because 
the New Testament wasn't complete. He hadn't even finished Second Timothy yet. But he's saying something that pertains to what he said in the preceding verse, that is, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings and you were instructed for salvation through faith in Christ, and then he reminds them of the general principle that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Then verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And that word complete, artios, is one that I've, I kind of fixed on, I grabbed hold of. I said, you know, this, is, uh, this means complete, capable, proficient, maybe even sufficient. But the more I went into that, the more I realized that you really can't use this text to undermine the authority of the church because of what Paul had told Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, where he describes the church, he says, is the pillar and foundation of truth. So you can't say we're going to uh, raise up Scripture as our sole authority at the same time an earlier Scripture says, but the church is the pillar and foundation of truth. It is. I'm going to stop it right there. We have some more, but just to point out, Steve, that what you were talking about, their bad definition or understanding of Sola Scriptura is completely at work there. Uh, he, he will talk about Sola Scriptura being the sole authority rather than, as you've so clearly said, that the Scriptures are the sole infallible authority. Well, precisely, and you're kind of left wondering that if this is truly what Scott Hahn believed as a Protestant, then there's really... Uh, no great mystery as to why he converted. The thing that I have difficulty with in his conversion story is he talks about uh, what an ardent reader he was of the reformers, of men like Luther and Calvin. And I simply don't understand how it is that he misrepresents and misunderstood the doctrine of Sola Scriptura when it's so clearly taught by these men as being the only infallible rule of faith, not the only rule of faith. Well, here's, he's going to horse around a little bit more at the end of this quote, which this is, I think, a doozy. Here, here he comes. It is also sharing in this divine authority. So what I realized after going deeper and deeper into 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 was that the Bible certainly is sufficient at one level. That is, not formal sufficiency, not even necessarily what some scholars call material sufficiency, but for me, it was practically sufficient to show me that you have tradition, you have the sacraments, you have the church, and you have the hierarchy, and Christ has established all of these things and the Bible was sufficient for me, practically speaking, to show me that the Catholic Church is the Church of the Bible. <laughs> this is great. So the, the, the sufficiency of the Scriptures is to point to the tradition. <laughs> this is just classic. Well, you know, it's, it's really kind of a, a, a mess of circular reasoning. You know, he says that the Bible isn't sufficient to teach me what, do I, what I need to know. How do I know that? Because the Bible taught me that. Yeah, yeah, the Bible you know, the, points the, me to the church, and then I go to the, look at the church, and I realize that the church gave me the Bible. Oh, right. boy. And how do I know that? Well, I appeal to what the Bible says about the church. <laughs> it's, it's a tremendous mass of circular reasoning. There's a couple things, though, that I kind of wanted to, to say about that. The first thing is he talks about how 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 refers to the Old Testament. Now, I would disagree with him there to the extent that it doesn't refer only to the New Testament. It talks about all Scripture being inspired by God. We're not talking about something quantitative here, the number of books in the Bible. We're talking about something qualitative here. That is, all of the books which are theopneustos from the Greek. That is, all that are God-breathed or inspired. The apostles were very aware of the fact that God was through them adding to the canon. In Second Peter chapter 3, verse 16, for example, the Apostle, um, the apostle Peter links the, the writings of the Apostle Paul with, 
what he calls the rest of the scriptures. And so, you know, Peter was very aware of the fact that Second Timothy chapter 3, the things that he was writing, the things that others were writing, were in fact becoming part of the received, inspired Word of God. So now, That's an important, I mean, historical point. When the prophets were writing, they knew they were writing prophetic writings, and the people knew they were writing prophetic writings. And when the apostles were writing, they knew that's what they were writing, and the people who were receiving it knew that's exactly what they were getting when they got the letters from the apostles. It's not like they were waiting around for the uh, for the Pope to tell them if they were inspired or not. Everybody knew that these were God's inspired words. Well, precisely. You know, and the other thing he brings up is from is from First Timothy chapter three fifteen, where the Apostle Paul says that the church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth, and that's absolutely true. Uh, but what does a what does a pillar or a foundation do? It holds something up, and what the church holds up is the inspired word of God to preach it, to proclaim it, and to teach it. But it itself is not the truth. It is simply the pillar and the foundation of that which is true, namely God's Word. Nicely done. Now back to Second Timothy 3.16, though. Uh, he says it only has a practical sufficiency, the Scriptures, but not a formal or material sufficiency. What in the world do, does that mean, and how, why is he wrong about that? Yeah, well, it's, it's a couple of different things. The, the Protestant Reformers have always taught what we call the formal sufficiency. That is, the Scriptures in and of themselves... Uh, are, are formally able to operate as the sole infallible rule of faith for the Christian Church. Right? That's the teaching of the Scriptures, that's the teaching as a result of the Protestant Reformers. Um, what the Roman Catholics were teaching at the time of, of Trent was this idea that, uh, that the Scriptures were insufficient to function as our sole infallible rule of faith, and that it had to be supplemented on some level with tradition. And uh, as the years went by and the debate between Protestants and Catholics continued to intensify, um, Rome it became clearer and clearer to those that were deep thinkers within the Roman Catholic Church that the position that was held at Trent and that had been uh, advanced against Luther and Calvin and the other reformers simply couldn't be justified in the Scriptures, nor could it be justified on the basis of the writings of the Church Fathers. So along comes a man uh, named Newman, uh, and Newman uh, came up with this idea of the development of Christian doctrine. And uh, his idea was is that uh, Christian doctrine may start out kind of in embryonic form and then grow into maturity throughout the centuries and the millennia. So you have in the New Testament and in the writings of the early Church Fathers kind of an acorn. But what you have in the current Roman Catholic Church today is the grown-up, beautiful oak tree. And so, yes, we may not be able to find. Did he really say the acorn and the and the and the oak tree? Right. He did. Because right. I mean, I, I, all I can think of is that that the nut doesn't fall far from the tree. From the tree. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but uh, you know, the, the point here is is that basically it was a retreat from uh, being able to engage the issues on a meaningful way anymore. Because you know, we could say, well, where do the scriptures teach, for example? Uh, that uh, that we can give out indulgences, you know, these uh, these things that that remit the temporal punishments uh, that are due to sin, and they'd say, well, we we can't find those in in the scriptures, and we can't find them in in the earliest church fathers, but you know, I mean, tradition develops over time, so you know, by the medieval period, uh, we find these kinds of things, and that's that's evidence of the Holy Spirit kind of leading and guiding the church into all truth. Now, anybody can make that claim. In fact. 
you know, uh, Brian, as well as I do, that, that there are some current claims today of, for example, uh, those in the ELCA, in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, where they're teaching that the Holy Spirit is leading and guiding them in order to recognize uh, homosexuality as being a, a valid lifestyle. Well, we know that that contradicts the scriptures, so we reject it. The Holy Spirit doesn't lead and guide the, the, the church to recognize and proclaim truths that contradict the scriptures. And that's the same answer we would give to those in the ELCA. It's the same answer historically that we've given to the Roman Catholics. Yeah, really, that's what brings up the problem, is because here you are reading the scriptures, and you see this marvelous and beautiful teaching of the gospel uh, of, of justification, that, that God imputes to us the righteousness of his Son Christ. And we see that in, being the central teaching of the scriptures. And then here comes along. Along the, the here comes the Roman Church and comes along and says, no, that's not in the Bible. That's a bunch of hogwash. That's not anywhere in there. Uh, and, and we know that we can teach whatever we want because uh, because we don't have this nonsense of sola scriptura. So 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 you have to listen to us and and not the Bible. I don't think it would have ever been a conflict if the church was actually teaching what was in the scriptures. The only time this becomes a question is when the voice of the church contradicts the voice of our Lord Jesus. Well, that's precisely it. You know, I, I think of the uh, the statement by Martin Chemnitz uh, in his Enchiridion Ministry, Word and Sacraments. He says, When bishops teach the Word of God pure and incorrupt and enjoin what Christ commanded to be observed, then their authority is sanctioned by Christ. Now think about that. An authority sanctioned by Christ, you can't get a higher authority than that. When they preach and they teach God's Word, then they have God's authority behind them, and we are bidden to, to heed them, uh, and if we if we don't, then it's at our own peril. Uh, but it's when they go beyond the bounds of what God has revealed to preach and teach human ideas and human philosophies, then we're commanded to flee from such things. We have the same in the words of Jesus when he says, whoever hears you, hears me. And he Precisely. doesn't mean whatever you want to say, then, I, then that's what I want to say. He means when you speak my voice, then you are speaking on my behalf. You, you speak with my own authority when you're... Uh, when your preaching and teaching lines up with the teaching of the Scriptures. That's exactly it, because when you bring the Word of Christ, the pure and true Word of Christ, then you bring Christ himself. Uh, this kind of clarity is what we find when we turn to the Scriptures, but I'm afraid that the Catholic uh, rejection and the rejection, in the, for example, in the ELCA or in the Anglican Church or any of the whacked-out lib churches hanging around, or, or anyone, really, anyone that rejects Sola Scriptura, is rejecting the clarity of the Scriptures, uh, rejecting that the Scriptures can be rightly understood apart from some sort of authoritative interpretation. And we got a quote by this fellow, uh, oh, what is this guy's name here, Michael Voris, uh, on, on this very thing. I, I want you to talk about the philosophical underpinning behind this idea. Here we go. It is never just Scripture. If you're reading through Scripture... I open up a book here, I'm reading, blah, 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 blah. it's never just Scripture, how I know what it means. Here's the cutting difference. It's always interpreted. Everything you see in Scripture has to then be interpreted. And the difference between Catholics and non-Catholic Christians is who's doing the interpretation. Here's the Bible, the Catholic Bible. On this side are non-Catholic Christians each of whom interprets it for him or herself. On this side are Catholics who leave the interpretation to this to the church. Somebody is always interpreting this. Always. It's either you or it's the church. 
It's either a minister that you agree with until you don't agree with him, and then you run off and start your own church, or it's the Catholic Church. There is no such thing as Scriptures alone. It is always Scriptures plus someone's interpretation of it. And, you know, it is... All right, I've had enough of that. Okay, what do you think, Steve? (laughs) A couple of things. Number one, like most Catholic apologists, he completely ignores the way in which God revealed himself to his people for thousands of years prior to the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, he ignores the Old Testament entirely. There is no infallible authority in the Old Testament, apart from the prophets themselves who are speaking God's word. But nevertheless, it wasn't simply every Jew with his Bible in the woods making up whatever it is that he wanted to believe. Instead, uh, the Jews were to listen to the priests as they taught and as they preached God's word, insofar as what they said agreed with what the scriptures taught. You know, there's this idea that... um, uh, this kind of this false humility to say that I'm going to go ahead and submit to the teaching authority of the church, and that makes me very, very humble because it shows that I'm not trusting in myself. You know what? True humility submits to God's word. Sometimes the church brings that word in its truth and purity. Sometimes it doesn't. We see that in spades in the Old Testament. We see that in spades in the New Testament, and we see that in spades in church history. And so he says it's either you or the church. I would ask him the question, well, what was it in the Old Testament? Was it either them or the priesthood, because God tells Israel and holds them responsible for not listening to the priests when they bring falsehood. He does the same thing in the New Testament with pastors. Think about, for example, uh, in, uh, in Acts chapter 20, where the Apostle Paul talks about how from your own number, men will arise teaching false doctrine, not sparing the flock. There are savage wolves inwardly. And, and, I mean, this is, this is precisely what we have been warned about throughout the Old Covenant, throughout the New Covenant. And the bottom line is, is that true humility clings to and submits to the teaching of God's Word, despite what the Church says or does not say about it. That's an, I never had thought about that, Steve, is that all these commands, the commands of our Lord Jesus, the commands of the Apostles, to beware of false teachers, they cannot apply to the Christian in the Roman Catholic tradition, because the Christian does not have that... Uh, right, authority, or whatever, to, to to be concerned with false doctrine. It is only the job of the church, whatever that abstraction means uh, in, the, in their mind, that can be aware of false teaching, because they're the only ones that know the true teaching. Well, precisely, and there's, there's two things to point out here. Number one, there's a grand irony that, that these men like Scott Hahn and Jerry Matatix and, and uh, Tim Staples and some of these other men that we've been discussing, all of these guys do what the Catholic Church tells you you're not allowed to do in order to become Catholic, and that is they interpret the Scriptures on their own and they inter- interpret the writings of the Church Fathers on their own. The Church says only we have the authority to interpret the Scriptures and only we have the authority to interpret the Church Fathers. The second thing that, that I find most interesting is the Church Fathers themselves contradict uh, precisely what, what the clip that you just played said. Listen to this from, uh, from John Chrysostom, and this is from his, uh, his homily on the Acts of the Apostles. He says, What then shall we say to the heathen? There comes a heathen and says, I wish to become a Christian, but I, not, I, I don't know whom to join. There's much fighting and faction among you, much confusion. Which doctrine am I to choose? How shall we answer him? Each of you, says he, asserts, I speak the truth. And then Chrysostom gives the answer here. No doubt, this is in our favor. For if we told you to be persuaded by arguments, you might well be perplexed. But if we bid you to believe the scriptures, and these are simple and true, the decision is easy for you. If any agree with the scriptures, he is the Christian. If any fight against them, he is far from this rule. Ah, beautiful. 
That is beautiful. And so the scripture and, and the word that Chrysostom uses there is simple. I think I used before the word clarity, and this is one of the chief attributes of the scripture, is that they are clear in all matters of salvation, that they, that they tell us everything we need to know in simple and plain language. Precisely. That's exactly what Chrysostom says here, and this is exactly what the Scriptures teach concerning themselves. I mean, how anybody can read, for example, Psalm 119 and come away with it that the Scriptures are largely unintelligible and darkness to the average Christian is beyond me. David tells us in Psalm 119, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It's not darkness, it's not obscurity, it's simple and it's pure and it's true, and as a result, it's a lamp and a light unto our feet. We have one more quote, and we're nearing the end. I, uh, this, by the way, is Table Scraps. You're listening to Pastor Brian Wolfmuller with Pastor Steve Parks, and we are uh, blasting away at this uh, ridiculous uh, attack on Sola Scriptura put forth by uh, different Roman Catholic apologists uh, uh, and seeing their own un- misunderstanding of it. We have one more, Michael Voorhees, Voorhees, I wonder how to say that, clip. Uh, we started out with a little snippet from it. Uh, this is where he comes right out and calls Sola Scriptura a lie invented by Luther so that he could attack the one true faith. Let's hear how this goes. I will tell you right now that Protestant theology, non-Catholic Christian theology, is built on one very large pillar, one very large primary battle cry, as it were, and it is sola scriptura. That's Latin for scriptures alone. Sola scriptura, alone scripture, meaning that everything we need to know is in scripture, and that's It, sola scriptura, is a lie. It is false. told you at the beginning this is a disturbing show because we talk about the truth. And we do not whitewash the truth here. We will not give it to you. If molasses all over it, you get it hard and fast. And if you're sitting at home going, whoa, wait a second, what he's saying? Let me repeat it and make it clear just so we're clear here because we're about clarity on this show. Sola scriptura (laughs) is false. Because the scriptures aren't. It is a lie. It doesn't even say that in Scripture. Oh, boy. Nowhere, nowhere in this Bible does it say that all of the truths necessary for your salvation are inside this Bible. There's a philosophical quandary right there. The Bible doesn't even say the Bible alone. Nowhere. As a matter of fact, it says the opposite. The Holy Spirit says in sacred Scripture through St. Paul, Hold fast to the traditions we handed on to you, both oral and written. Oral and written. Tradition and scripture. From St. Paul, who had a personal experience with Jesus, suffered greatly for him, spread the word and the gospel throughout the entire empire, and was eventually beheaded for it. What was that with that personal experience with Jesus? What's he getting at there, huh? Uh, probably the the encounter I'm guessing on the uh, the road to Damascus. Is he poking fun at evangelicals? Is that what he's after? <laughs> All right, let, let's let him keep going. Saint Paul wrote it down. The Holy Spirit inspired it. Sola Scriptura is a lie. It is false. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, never said that. Martin Luther said that. Fifteen centuries later. A sinful man said that, and then many people after him grabbed on to that. Jesus Christ never said that. 
The Holy Spirit in the Scriptures never said that. The apostles from whom we get the faith never said that. That is an alien thought that took 15 centuries to be thought of and propounded by somebody who wanted to attack the one true faith. Ah, that's it. That's the rub. Uh, you Okay, you've got a bucket here, so ju- you just start teeing off, Steve. Well, I, I think what I would say is that if you took out that one sentence where he says Martin Luther said that, I would agree 100% with what he said. Now, why do I, why do I say that? Because he's not attacking the teaching of the Reformers. He's attacking this false notion that, uh, that, that the Bible alone, sola scriptura, means that there are no other authorities in the Christian life whatsoever. As we've been jokingly saying here, it's just kind of me and my Bible in the woods. You know, there's a reason why uh, the, uh, the, the, the Catholic apo- uh, apologists kind of go in this direction. I mean, Scott Hahn talks about this in his book, Rome Sweet Home. He says, speaking of sola scriptura, in practice, this required all of us individuals to rethink the doctrine from the ground up. We believe that with the Holy Spirit and sacred scripture, we could reinvent all wheels, if need be. That's not the teaching of Martin Luther. That's not the teaching of the Protestant reformers, and he's absolutely right. There was no church father that taught that. But when you get into what we are talking about, that is, that the scriptures are the only infallible rule of faith, then it's an entirely different ball game. Then what we have is the teaching of the scriptures and the teachings of the church fathers as well. Uh, again, we need to really hit hard this idea that uh, that there's no tradition and that there's no um, no other authorities in the Christian life apart from the scriptures. That's simply not the teaching of the reformers. Listen to this. This is from uh, Martin Chemnitz in his examination of the Council of Trent. So here he's actually writing against the Catholic position, and this is what he says about tradition. He says, we have shown that we do not simply reject all traditions which are observed under this name and title among the ancients. For what is either contained in Scripture or is in agreement with it, we do not disapprove. Okay, so Chemnitz wasn't saying it's just you and your Bible sitting under a tree, uh, you know, reinventing Christianity, rethinking it from the ground up, as Hans says in his book. Uh, the bottom line is, is simply that he's attacking a straw man. He's flailing at phantoms that don't actually exist. Well, there you go. Uh, scripture alone. If we add anything to the Scripture, this is the problem. If we say Scripture and, really what matters is the and. If we say Scripture and tradition, what matters is tradition. If we say Scripture and culture, what matters is culture. If we say uh, Scripture and reason, what matters is our own reason and rationality. When we say Scripture in the Church, what matters is what the Pope says. But when we say Scripture alone, what matters is the voice of Jesus which is the voice that comes to us with this comforting promise, that he forgives us all of our sins, that his death was for us, that he took our place on the cross so that we could have life eternal. And that's why this doctrine is so important, Scripture alone, because it's only in the Scriptures uh, that God comes to us with this most precious promise, uh, that he would be our God and our Father and that we would be his people both now and forever. Steve, I really appreciate all your insights on this. Um, on this, uh, Thanks for being on the show. My privilege. Thank you for, for having me. I think what we might do is do this again uh, sometime in the next couple of weeks and take up the doctrine of sola fide and see, uh, uh, and, and see, uh, and see what the Roman Catholic apologists are uh, blasting away at our doctrine of faith alone and see what the Scripture says about that. But why don't you uh, wrap us up then uh, with why this matters and, uh, and, and really perhaps a final word on how we should treat these Roman apologists uh, when we run across them. 
Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I, there's, there's a couple of things that I think should be kind of said in closing. Uh, the first is that, you know, the importance of the doctrine of sola scriptura can't be overstated, because as you said just a moment ago, when you add anything to scripture, scripture and tradition, scripture and reason, etc., what you end up doing really is wiping out the scriptures altogether, or as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 15, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your traditions. And what happens when you nullify the word of God? You cut yourself off from Christ and all of his benefits. You know, the Pharisees were taught in their traditions that what they did merited or deserved or, uh, or somehow earned God's favor and his grace. And Roman Catholics, unfortunately, are being led astray into the exact same teaching that their tradition teaches them that they have to, in the final analysis, merit their own salvation. And the scriptures speak against that, from Genesis to Revelation. But unfortunately, the, script, the voice of the Holy Scriptures are being silenced in the Roman Church because people are being taught they can't understand them. And the Church itself has to tell you what the scriptures mean. The very same error that the Pharisees committed, leading to, once again, the very same error uh, regarding works that the Pharisees were preaching and teaching. Now, what are we to do when we encounter these Roman Catholic apologists and so on? You know, not everybody is a theologian. You and I both recognize that. And not everybody may be able to uh, understand and, and be able to identify these errors off the bat. And, and they can be difficult. I mean, I don't want to give the impression at all that these guys are, are stupid in any way. They're educated. Uh, they, they have thought about these issues, and even though they tend to misrepresent our views, sometimes they do it in such a way that, that many listeners don't actually pick up on it. And so the bottom line is, is that we need to hold them to the standard of God's Word always and continually, that Word of truth which does not lie nor deceive, that Word which cannot lead us astray, but the Word that points us always and continually back to the Lord Jesus Christ and Him crucified for the forgiveness of all of our sins. We bring Sola Scriptura to bear on those who would deny it. Uh, I like it. And thanks again for those of you out there listening. Uh, tune back in again to Table Scraps uh, here in a few weeks uh, while, when uh, Pastor Parks and I will take up the conversation on Sola Fide. If you have any feedback, you can uh, leave it at our website, www.tabletalkradio.org. Uh, that's a brand new site. And uh, when you listen to the podcast there, you should find a place for comments and conversation. Uh, we always welcome that. You can also call our 800 number, which is always, I've got no idea what it is, but I'm sure if you look on our website, uh, you can find it there. Thanks for listening to Table Scraps. Oh.